Welcome to Growing Up in Crisis. This is a project that was created in collaboration with um, health practitioners and people from the community. And it was to investigate what are the unique pathways of poor health that are being faced by children today. And this isn't to be sensationalist or to be hyperbolic, but is to understand how we are best going to support the health of young children, specifically in the context of a full life of health and or dignity. Meaning that what happens to us in childhood has direct effects to our adult health and even our geriatric health. So for example, children that grow up in areas of high levels of air pollution become adults that are at higher risks for dementia and Parkinson's later on in life. So really we can't think about long-term health or adult health or geriatric health without considering what childhood health looks like. We also understand that there are multiple moving parts, such as migration that is being catalyzed through the continuation of both imperialism and colonialism, powered by the expansion of capitalism that is forcing people to move out of their ancestral lands or original lands. In practice, this means that multiple countries that will that want to continue to have imperialist control, such as the United States, are taking lands from indigenous peoples all over the world for the purposes of mining, for the purposes of taking more resources in order to advance capitalistic goals. On top of that, these methods also require extraction, which also can lead to things like deforestation. And thus we have habitats that become completely dysregulated. A habitat that is dysregulated no longer can nourish people. At times it has much less biodiversity, which means that again, people don't have their original food resources, but it also means a contamination of water, land and air, making it very dangerous for people to stay in those habitats. And again, that's another pathway to migration. So it's those elements that we are looking at both in the report and that also led to a discussion with health practitioners and parents. So in this recording, we are going to be summarizing some of these learnings, both of the roundtable and of the report. And we're going to start with the framing of crisis. Crisis is a word that we often hear now, whether it is climate crisis, cost of living crisis, food crisis, and so on and so forth. But what does it actually mean to be in crisis? Or more importantly, what causes a crisis? So if we think about a very, very simple metaphor, 
And remember, like all metaphors, they are linear and they are simple. So sometimes they miss nuance. But if we take this metaphor, so say that it's raining outside and we go outside with no waterproofs and inadequate shoes. And we continue to go for a walk. In this walk, we might slip because the ground could be slippery due to the rain. And we're also gonna be soaking wet. What we are being told is that the crisis is the rain. But what if the crisis wasn't the rain? What if the crisis is actually our ability to obtain the waterproofs? So i.e. waterproofs for our feet and waterproofs for, for ourselves. But more than that, what if, the, what if the crisis is not just about the individual, about who can get waterproofs? What if the crisis is actually more systemic, that it has to do with systems of power in terms of not only who and how the waterproofs get created, but also what causes this dysregulation that would mean that a habitat would have a disproportionate amount of rain. And that's what we want to impart in this discussion, that we begin to learn to look at the right thing, that we begin to understand how to describe the phenomena that is happening to us. Because for example, going back to the metaphor, if we all put our focus on the rain, well, that is an impossible feat. We can't stop rain. And if we only focus on waterproofs, then we're not thinking systemically and the, and the challenges will continue. So as we have this conversation, we want you to keep this metaphor in check to really understand what is the driving force of this crisis? Where are exactly the nodes that then we need to move in order to provide better healing practices and better healing strategies for the next generations? So now I'm gonna pass it over to Daniel, who's gonna take us to the next sections. Thanks, Araceli. So in the next section, we'll talk about identifying a crisis. So our Growing Up in Crisis report from the Urban Health Council presented a range of these intersecting factors that I actually just mentioned. And I think to give a good example, we'll bring three of the factors up, which are food insecurity, pollution, and forced displacement. The overlapping traits between these three are that they basically lack the consent of the children because they're systemic. And so none of these are to do with children's behavior or it's nothing to do with how they're social, like how they are inherently, but it has to do with the systems in which they live, the systems they have to operate, the systems they've been born into or maybe been moved into. And so if we look briefly at these three as examples, we can see what's similar and what's different. Now with food insecurity, there are crucial ties to childhood development and susceptibility to disease and disorders that children are likely to experience as adults. And again, the food insecurity is a power question. It is a case of accessibility. It is a case of if the asset doesn't exist. So if, there are, if there's no way to access 
a balanced dining access food. There's not you can't really balance that or make up for that as a child. And these things happen on a very fundamental level for children. And then with pollution, it's a similar dynamic, but this can be more abrupt. This can be something that can happen where it's, it doesn't take months, but sometimes it can just take minutes. And you can see this even where I'm based in South, Southeast London, a lot of cases of children developing asthma and how that changes the kind of medication they need that changes the lifestyle they're able to have. And what that looks like on a systemic level are things like right to pollute and our societal tolerance for pollution. So saying what infrastructure is okay to pollute because we think society has a better benefit for it and we're willing to risk the development of the children who are close to these sources of pollution. This again becomes a power conversation and it's not about the individual activities or abilities of the children. And then if we look lastly at forced displacement, all of that gives a loss of community and social resilience. And what that means then is that there, there's more stress on the individual family unit to actually support and develop this child rather than the ability for a community to do this. And if the government and if the wider community isn't already supporting, that is going to be pretty detrimental to the way that child is able to navigate their life and be able to make decisions and be able to avoid some of these later in life disorders and diseases. And so what, again, ties all of these together uh, is this idea of the crisis is a power dynamic. As Arishali said in the metaphor, it's about this access to the waterproofs. It's about the presence of waterproofs, the education around waterproofs. It's not about the rain itself. And so we can transition then to the cause of the crisis. Now, the cause of the crisis really is the intersection of these factors, but it's also how we as society view how we find solutions. While there are benefits to identifying these factors as individual pathways, they overlap on the same people. There isn't an explicit side of like a country or a city that deals with air pollution where another side deals with food scarcity. Most of the time, they do end up happening in the same population. And so we have to keep our solutions integrated because if they're in silos, as much as the current system does, where things like funding are actually competing between these different problems and solutions, then there becomes a competition and it hard, it's harder to find a solution that actually covers everything and gives long-term or fundamental progress and success to children's health. And so basically these causes tend to be large scale, things such as global production methods or the remnants of things such as colonialism, where industries that are post-colonial are left based on what resources and systems are left for those post-colonial states to actually thrive off of. And so they might be trying to live in one case by saying we have an industry that's propping up, but then all these things to do with climate change, to do with a system that's not going to be efficient for their country 30 years on in a time where these children are already adults or getting towards geriatric, this becomes the, where the crisis comes into full form. 
And this ultimately leads back to the power of an infrastructure and the idea that, again, this is not just about individuals. It's not just about one perspective or lifestyle. It is about that societal framing of an issue and the ability for different silos to understand their own specialties. And in this case, food insecurity, we do need to understand about specific global production and how local production works and what foods are specialized in our region versus outside. But ultimately, if we're saying we're finding a solution for children to address this childhood acute crisis, it needs to be an integrated solution where people who are talking about pollution are actually doing solutions with food scarcity, with people that are talking about immigration and, and societal structure, and they come together to find this holistic solution. So with that, we'll pass it over to Amit, who will look at the response to the phenomena. So we discussed the question about what is the response to the phenomena and what does that look like? It's important to first define what a phenomena actually is. So if we go back to Arachali's analogy about rain, if the lack of resources such as umbrellas is the crisis, then getting wet is the phenomena. Um, is the phenomena. Uh, in other words, it's the result of the crisis that communities see and feel. In acknowledging that, it becomes clear that communities must respond to the phenomena itself. This does not mean that we ignore the crisis. In fact, any response to the phenomena must be done whilst being acutely aware of the crisis itself and how they intersect and amplify one another. This means recognizing that the crisis is not a singular event, but instead an ongoing experience deeply affecting communities. In knowing this, our response to the phenomena can be long-lasting, repeatable, whilst being effective short-term at the same time. The issue is that if we ignore the phenomena and focus purely on the crisis, by the time we stop the crisis, there'll be no one left to reap the reward. So we can split this up into a few main pillars, one being community, the second being healthcare, and the final one being intellectual. So on the community level, we must first off move beyond the notion that the responsibility for children's well-being lies solely with their immediate parent or guardian. Instead, we must approach it as being a responsibility of the community as a whole. This is particularly important right now, considering the pressure being put on nuclear fam families in the age of capitalism. Lack of infrastructure, lack of time, means that people cannot shield their children from crisis. So we need to recognize that children are part of a large network of support, including extended families, friends, neighbors, mentors, their education systems, and recreational centers, etc. In doing so, we can start building resources and developing strengths around these resources to actually make sure uh, young people are supported the way they need to be. This also means inevitably that we must uh, means that our response must be centered within the community itself. When local residents are actively involved in designing and implementing solutions, they're more likely to address the unique challenges their community actually faces. One key strategy, of course, is to weave crisis response into familiar community infrastructure and spaces, rather than having to create new ones every single time. This could mean in, this could also mean utilizing places like faith-based organizations, community centers, parks, and so on to create safe and nurturing environments for young people to grow up in. This approach not only ensures accessibility, but encourages a sense of belonging, kinship, familiarity that can mitigate the negative impacts of the crisis. Beyond prevention, though, our treatments must also be community-centered. This can be envisioned through solutions such as food banks with community eating spaces, or through, for example, what the group Peaks of Color do, 
community walks like Path of Life Healing by rekindling relationships with nature for oppressed communities. What we're talking about there is really working on a spatial level by using the resources and spaces around us for healing and preventing the crises and the phenomena itself, but also on a cultural level by creating space for cultural development, cultural growth and retention itself of culture. Finally, we must recognize the difference between community and care systems and how they can intersect with one another. Because whilst healthcare systems play a crucial role, they should complement, not replace, the efforts of the community. A comprehensive response acknowledges the strengths of both systems and seeks to create synergy between them, where care systems are supporting community systems and not the other way around. Especially considering right now when we look at healthcare itself, healthcare is quite often short-term, paternalistic, with very rapidly uh, rapid-moving uh, big hospitals. So we need to work towards becoming proactive, preventative, rather than being reactive in itself. So those of, those of us within the medical community and care systems must move beyond allyship and instead focus on kinship. The foundations of this are rooted in understanding and reconceptualizing how we define caregiving. This first of all begins by recognizing our bias and privilege, as well as, as, well as how this leads to a power imbalance within and outside of clinical spaces. Our clinical practice must also be guided by the lived experience and needs of communities that we serve. This means not only understanding the crisis, but instead understanding the phenomena through the lens of the community itself. Through this, we can understand which questions to ask our patients and how, as well as incorporating indigenous and non-Western healing practices into our treatment pathways. Through that, we can improve our policies, protocols, and guidelines. Crucially, to enact kinship truthfully, our presence must be within the community itself. This means caring for community gardens, helping to repair community centers, and so on. This is what will allow the community to actually develop an agency of trust for us to engage with them. That also means working on that on the, in the wards as well, so creating spaces for community growth, spatial and cultural growth within the wards and other clinical spaces themselves. Finally, looking at the intellectual side of things, we must also recognize that we must meet children where they're at rather than bringing them to where we are at. Each young person's experience is unique, shaped by their individual circumstances, interests, and needs. A successful response requires listening to their voices, understanding their perspectives, tailoring interventions to suit their specific situations. This person-centered approach ensures that the solution offers are relevant and effective. So again, this means recognizing that a response is not one size fits all, but instead, instead focusing on what the person itself needs. And in doing this, we need to focus on actually raising political voices of young people and directly engaging with children. That will also lead to re reframing different notions. For example, forced displacement is often seen as something that's global, whereas it should be referred to as something that's actually happening within cities, within local areas itself, due to racialization, class, gender, oppression as well. So when we look at these three different sections, um, community, intellectual, and healthcare, combining those together, we can work towards creating a response system that overcomes the phenomena that we face. With that, we can open up to a discussion now and talk about our learnings and, and reflections. Well, thank you for that, Dan and Amit. And for the people listening, we will now sound a bit more human um, as we move away from our scripted um, <clears throat> parts. So um, I guess, yeah, let's go, let's go around the room in terms of the learnings. And from the learnings, I mean both from the report and also the people that we brought together. Um, 
a couple months back. So we did have a parent. We're going to keep these people anonymous, by the way, um, as we said that we would. So we had a parent, a person that has done a lot of work um, with young um, children, specifically adolescents, and we had an emergency doctor. So uh, working with children that are facing um, some sort of um, life-threatening condition or situation. I guess my learning was the emotionality of, of, of the whole event where it is overwhelming. And we started off, I think, with a sense of overwhelmingness and sadness, really, of where we are at in terms of the many things that we know are affecting and will be affecting children. And then as it progressed, as case studies started to emerge of the different ways that primary health or community health can be approached and how um, we can not just, we can do this community to community, but we can also do this systemically. I think the mood also changed to one that was lighter, but lighter coming from the fact that there are solutions and that we have also historical solutions, um, such as the the Black Panther um, community clinics that they started in the as part of the civil rights movements in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and it, those clinics were community-led. They were in collaboration with doctors, and they were set up all over the United States predominantly to be able to test for sickle cell anemia because this was something that was predominantly affecting those who were racialized as Black. Um, and what they were being told, the information that they were being told about the disease was not correct, but also there was no um, want by the U.S. government to open up an actual research arm for this. So they rolled up their sleeves and did it for themselves. And then from there realized that actually there was a full need of providing um, those that were racialized and poor with access to health education as well as um, health facilities. So that's a really great example, I think, from history that allows us to reflect that if we do come together, if we focus on the community, if we focus on the right phenomena or the right point of action, solutions can can arise and can come and can be very, very effective. So yeah, what did you guys, how did you guys feel about the, about the event? I think that it's kind of highlighted, I guess, a theme that obviously shows up a lot in our work about this duality of the formal and informal, right? And so when, because everything you've just said really is like a set of prime examples of when the line hasn't been drawn yet and you go into a conversation like this, it's very easy to get worried or to get fear or like the emotional response to kick in because you're kind of possibly looking at it as a micro to macro. You're looking at it as like, maybe it's like the climate conversation in general. A lot of people kind of have this eco-anxiety or things about, well, you're telling me my, my individual thing or about my community, but these big things that, structures such as like corporations or 
our, our military, etc., are doing. But then when you make it clear that there are levels to this and each needs its own approach, then you can actually say, well, the hope does come from the fact that you can still do your your bit on the local, on the macro or the micro level. And that they, it doesn't mean you forget about the macro, but you actually have to just understand that they move at different speeds. They have different levels of involvement. Asking in this case between informal care of uh, your you know, friends, family, uh, social situations and social infrastructure versus what the healthcare as a responsibility, as a legal professional responsibility. Those are two different conversations that move at two different speeds. One can just be the fact that you have a few events that open up locally that allow people to come together to eat and to say, I've got you, you've got me. Another one is possibly a policy move or a case of educating young doctors to say to that once you get to the point that you are actually talking to community about where they're at and what help they need, you're better equipped. That's obviously over the course of their training. That's the course of like, you know, years. And so I think once that was broken up, the part that you're saying about that, where the hope comes in was about being able to say, to ideate and given the space, the idea and say, well, oh, we do this. Because I think that's something that was also captured quite well in a round table. It seemed like people really did kind of say, oh, that's interesting that you've heard about this thing. I've heard of something similar or in practice, this is what I would recommend. But it's cool to know that the community is doing something that mirrors what we're doing. And I think if more spaces open up for that kind of dialogue and collaboration, then you might realize that you don't actually have to build the entire thing on one side or the other. Like you don't have to make an explicitly new medical program that you know starts everything over to the point of like what is a human but you also don't have to make a community build what an actual hospital could actually just have as an an opportunity or a program or a department if that makes sense so yeah so i think it's just how the dual tea was uh what happens after the dual tea was kind of um made explicit between informal and formal that led to some of the real good interactions and some of the people being put at ease about going through the round table. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. Um, and I guess that made me think also about how, like reflecting on it, how far healthcare workers are seen to be from the community itself. Whereas in reality, we do exist within the community. We're eating from the same places, we're shopping at the same places, going to the same parks, right? Um, that was really interesting and obviously really worrying to recognize exactly how much of a gap there is between what we consider the community and what we consider the caregivers or the, the healthcare providers within that community um which i guess kind of links to what you've been talking about about daniel as well um and i think on a micro to macro level as well thinking about how actually breaking that down so that you know that conversation about how a crisis can be broken down into the phenomena phenomena that result from it itself and how we can use that as a way to actually digest what's happening and create that hope, I guess, that Arachidi was talking about as well. Because when we break that down, we can start looking at solutions that occur on the local level, on the community level, but they still recognize what's happening on the wider scale as well. Um, and use that learning from, from the bigger space to be able to digest it, respond to it without being overwhelmed by the lack of action or lack of change happening because you're actually creating that change yourself in a meaningful, um, um, reasonable way. 
Yeah. And I think it's also the, the sometimes when in a capitalist structure, we often can be forced into this way of thinking that things are going to cost a lot of money in there, or that a solution isn't going to be good enough unless it's got a lot of monetary infrastructure. And <clears throat> one of the case studies that I often refer to um, because of its efficacy, because of its low cost, and because of its community or communal effect um, is that of a program that was created in Zimbabwe and they much of the Western scientific literature has supported the myth and stupidity um, that people that are within the African continent do not experience mental health issues period, or at par with the West, um, as if they were somehow unable, you know, sorry, as if they were not human enough to be affected by everything that's happening um, in our societies. And this then got taken into the hands of, um, of um, Black um, scientists and doctors in Zimbabwe to think, well, of course, we feel depression and we're feeling anxiety and other mental health illnesses. And without being able to identify it, we're not going to be able to get the help to our people um, that they need. And so <clears throat> they took this under their own epistemologies, under their own ways of interacting with their people. And what they came up with is that they identified who is the most trusted person in the Zimbabwean society? And they identify that it was a grandmotherly or auntie figure. And so they thought, then the next thing is, what is the most effective way to put an auntie or a grandma figure in front of a person in need? Because the way that society is organized in parts in Zimbabwe wasn't going to be come to this XYZ center or let's make this incredibly formal and systematic the way that the West is used to um, enacting activities. And so they thought, okay, well, actually, let's set up multiple benches in different places in Zimbabwe identify the grandmothers that are going to come in and also multiple languages are spoken in Zimbabwe. So they also made sure that each grandma slash auntie was speaking the relative languages, et cetera, and was also very fluent in the respective cultural aspects of that each community has. And so, um, yeah, it worked really well because then the, then the doctors and the, and the quote unquote experts would then interview the auntie and grandmother figure to go, okay, what were your learnings? And they found not just a plethora of symptoms, but also a plethora of solutions. And that does that, you, you just think how effective and beautiful and community-based and the solution was. And number one, not highly like of a high cost, but also rooted in 
and cultures and in imaginations that are not Western. And so I think for maybe a question, I guess, that I have for you two is how do we, and I would say, I'm going to throw this specifically to Ahmed because you're within the healthcare industry. For those of us that don't belong to Western cultures um, and find ourselves living within the West, how do you, yeah, like what are your dreams in the way that we can heal at a community level, community level, at least for the primary health care, um, where we're not having to wait or to be incredibly dependent on Western systems, including financial systems? That's a really good question um, and a hard question at that as well. I think one thing that I've been thinking about, as you were saying what you were saying, Araceli, is the fluidity of it all. So how it's informal, but it's also fluid, right? It moves in a natural way, the same way as water moves, or the same way as trees move uh, with, with the wind, right? Um, and just connecting that to see actually, as humans, we are fluid people, uh, and the nature around us is fluid. What isn't fluid at the minute is our healthcare system. It's very rigid and very stiff in, in how it wants to uh, work and, and the roots of, of change, basically. Um, so I think that's one of the main things that comes to mind. Um, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of financial resources to make something more fluid. It rather actually could reduce the financial burden. In fact, um, it does, however, take the community to be a part of that process because we have to know exactly what the community wants um, and, and working with the community to decide how do we get what we need, right? Um, like you said, those grandmas were actually identifying symptoms, they were identifying treatments. Um, so clearly you don't have to um, have a deep understanding of Western biomedical approaches to, to treat somebody or to identify how to treat somebody. Um, there's a lot of learning and a lot of knowledge that's already held within our communities and bringing them back into what this rigid healthcare system currently shows can actually begin to, I think, chip that down slowly and make that a more fluid space in itself. I think that's, that's one of the main important things that come to mind. Yeah, to follow up on that answer, I actually think there's probably not a lot novel to to add in the fact that this is an underlying principle of even some of the ways we're trying to work and trying to engage and it's probably feedback that even comes from other conversations not even related to this crisis that we've had over the years which is the fact that some people you know as we call imagination or dreaming like some in the west or in somewhere like the uk you know people who are migrants or from different communities that aren't necessarily indigenous to to the west they even some that are indigenous to the west it's that permission to even say it's okay to have an informal and i'm um, and like to avoid persecution or to think of that as something that's going to be proactively taken abroad or shared amongst other community or people who are like me but on the other side of the city I think that's like that is kind of like the first frontier for all of this, right? And being able to actually find value and grace in the fact that you you're doing both at the same time. And but like the macro one, like I said, takes more investment. So the idea of saying that it is actually legitimate to have someone who's community-based 
whose job it is is just to have a litmus test, not because it's going to go into any productivity benchmark, but just for the sake of pure culture to say, you know, because that's like how you translate some of the fluidity of like what elders do, what communal spaces, the idea of that bench. And you say, well, okay, maybe that was my, my, um, I guess, my community from where I'm from. But here I have to find a makeshift one that does the same thing. So maybe it can't be an explicit bench the same way, but maybe it's a WhatsApp group. Maybe it is just the fact that you repurpose something that you already have to do for something else and then turn it into, oh, this is actually where we're going to get our health information and this is where we're going to talk about this because it comes back to that idea of trust and trust is like such a hard thing to invest in for a formal system but can be a lot easier for an informal system and so i think that example used with that case study is a prime example of that because to get that same effect and research if you think about that in the west that would be a whole program that needs funding that would be something where you'd have to say who are the faces of the interviewers that are going to go in and talk to this community and it'll be this whole big investment of something that like grammars already have built into a community right so it's about being able to be smart and fluid to say when is the grammar option actually better when is the elder option better when is the play option better and then when is the fact that this is an explicit disease an explicit thing that you need to actually just understand it as a very real um, set of processes you need to go through to get better and be able to have all of those be fluidly available. And so, yeah, so I think that that would be probably the best way to look at how how we approach this in a way that doesn't then kind of perpetuate the same problems we're trying to avoid. So to round this off, um, first of all, a reminder that a full report is also included as part of this discussion and we will tie the link into um, the podcast. Um, the next steps after this will be to expand um, our understanding of crisis but also bringing in specific um, people to talk about case studies because I think where we are now it is so important that we are co-learning from each other and that um, you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel and we can feel supported and energized through what other people are doing, but also case studies that have come from, from the past. So any last um, thoughts, Dan Amit, before we close off? I think that is the best uh, ranching point. And I think that's the view of where this type of reporting and this type of roundtable interaction is, is the fact that we didn't have to predetermine that, but it seemed quite clear that the way you get the informal structure set up is that sometimes it is about people just recognizing things that maybe they already engage. And so, yeah, the case study and being able to have people open up about their different case studies and make it a communal thing is actually something where you might then realize what's going on in your area and you, yeah, and so something can even just be built for people to coalesce around when they actually understand a story or when they understand that I'm probably doing something 60% of the way to what this person has said has worked. And so I should can, actually can go back and reflect and go to my people and figure something out. So I really look forward to when we bring those in. 
And, and I totally agree as well. Um, that made me think about how even in COVID, for example, um, we were so separated, but the stories that people remember from that time were the community stories of how you would wave to somebody or how you talk to someone across the road at times and those kind of experiences, um, which I guess goes back to that main point about the, the solution must be within the community itself and it has to be fluid from the community itself. Um, so I guess just reiterating, reiterating that as, as an ending point and uh, taking that learning from the case studies would be really beautiful, I think. This has been an Urban Health Council project. To read more, to engage, to collaborate and to support, please go to urbanhealthcouncil.com. Thanks and we'll see you next time.